All right, with that, let's look at Psalm chapter 5 together. I'm going to read the psalm, we'll pray, and uh, then we'll, we'll dissect this together a little bit. Psalm 5 says, Listen to my words, Lord, consider my sighing. Pay attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for I pray to you. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I plead my case to you and watch expectantly. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. The boastful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who tell lies. The Lord abhors violent and treacherous people. But I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. I bow down toward your holy temple in reverential awe of you. Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my adversaries. Make your way straight before me. For there is nothing reliable in what they say. Destruction is within them. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. Punish them, God. Let them fall by their own schemes. Drive them out because of their many crimes, for they rebel against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them shout for joy forever. May you shelter shelter them, and may those who love your name boast about you. For you, Lord, bless the righteous one. You surround him with favor like a shield. Would you pray with me? Father, as we look to your word today, and as we we come into this book of, of prayers and pleas and crying out to you in this book of, of worship and of pouring out uh, what is inside of our hearts, whether it be joy or frustration or fear or happiness, God, help us, help us to hear from your word today. Help us to take courage in this world that we live in and be bold for you. And help us to be comforted. May we find you, as the psalmist did, as a shield for all who take refuge in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you're beginning to see, this is our third psalm that we've looked at in this series. You're beginning to see the, the variety of expressions and the different emotions that come into play. Some of this is very poetic. Some of this is considered, well, it's all considered wisdom literature. But there's, there's times when the psalmist is has nothing to do but rejoice and, and to speak of how good God is. And then there's times when you can tell there's, there's fear, there's trepidation, sometimes there's frustration. Sometimes that frustration is with God. And we find in the Psalms that all of those things are okay. That the variety of human emotions that we experience often find their home in the Psalms. And, and we learn how to turn to God in our fear, how to turn to him in our frustration. This particular psalm is written by David. Many of the psalms are, not all of them, uh, but many of the psalms are written by David. And we know that throughout David's life, he had many enemies. There were, there were times when he was literally running for his life, hoping to survive, hoping that God would turn back his enemies that were pursuing him. Most of us have never never been in a position like that where we're literally fleeing and, and spending days, weeks, maybe even months trying to avoid those who are pursuing us, trying to kill us. But David did. And you can go to, if you go to Israel, you can go and you can see many of the places where 
historically we know were the places that David fled from, from, the, from his enemies and the places where he was hiding out and it's a fascinating place to visit and it just brings to life psalms like this. What would be so bad that David would, would be literally praying for God to destroy his enemies? Well, that's part of what we get into in this psalm. If you have the handout in front of you, a few things I want to mention from this psalm. We'll make some observations and then try to bring it home with some application. Uh, the first thing is this. It is our privilege to take our burdens to the Lord and rely on him. I hope, I hope that, that one of the main things you get as we go through some psalms together, one of the main things that you walk away with is that whatever you're feeling, whatever you're experiencing, that it's okay to take that to God and to learn how to rely on him through that. Sometimes we get the impression that it's okay to talk to God when we're happy, that it's okay to talk to him when things are going well, but if we're in a bad mood or if we're kind of frustrated with God or, or we're sort of having um, a crisis of faith, then we shouldn't come to him. And the Psalms are evidence that nothing could be further from the truth. It's in those moments that we most need to come to him. It's, it's those emotions that we need to learn to bring to him and to trust him. And to that. Let's look again at the first couple of verses. David says, listen to my words, Lord. Consider my sighing. He's, he's crying out. This is a lament. This is, this is not David coming before God to say how happy he is. This is David in crisis. Pay attention to the sound of my cry, my king, and my God, for I pray to you. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I plead my case to you and watch expectantly. If you read Psalm 5 alongside of Psalm 4, in Psalm 4, David is, is it's a very similar psalm, but he's talking about praying in the evening. And it's certainly no mistake that these two psalms are placed together, the point being that we can come to the Lord in the morning, we can come to him in the evening, we ought to come to the Lord anytime with the burdens that are on our hearts. That's what David does. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I plead my case to you and watch expectantly. David has learned that when he is troubled, when he is scared or afraid when he is in what seems to be an impossible situation he has learned to come to the lord he has learned to make those things known to him and not only to make his case but he has learned to watch expectantly because he knows god is going to respond he knows that god is going to come through for him so he pleads his case, and he watches expectantly. Could, could that be said of you? Is this how you handle frustration? Is this how you handle trials? Is this how you handle difficult days? Do you find yourself, when things aren't going well, taking those things to the Lord? Most of us probably could do a lot better, myself included. It's in those times that we need to be willing to take our burdens to him we need to be willing to come to him. Don't shy away from the Lord. 
we act like God doesn't already know the condition of our heart. We're like, I don't want God to see me like this. (laughs) He already sees you. He already knows all the nastiness and the ugliness inside of you. What he wants is for you to come to him so that, so that he can carry that burden and so that he can, he, he can teach you to depend upon him. So come to him. Bring your burdens. Let me ask, you, let me ask it this way. What's, what's, the, what's burdening you the most right now? I assume all of us have something. They're like, that you're like, this is, this is a weight. It's bothering me. I need, I need God to come through here. I need an answer. I need provision. I need something. What's burdening you the most right now? And then the follow-up question to that is, have you taken that to the Lord regularly? And for many of you, the answer is absolutely yes. And if that's you, then you just continue to watch expectantly. God will come through. God will do something. He will work on your behalf. So continue to watch expectantly. But for those of us who are carrying burdens that we haven't even brought before the Lord, that we haven't even given to him in prayer, that we haven't even invited his intervention into, this is a reminder to us. This should be an encouragement to us that we have this privilege to take our burdens before the Lord. And and to leave them and rely on him for the answers. The New Testament echoes this same reminder. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 tells us, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him. Why? Because he cares about you. This is incredible to think about. The God of the universe, the one who created everything that is in existence. I don't know how many of you are keeping up um, with this James Webb telescope thing that's been sent into space, and it's sending back all these amazing pictures from space, and we're getting an even better image of the vastness and the glory of the universe that God has created. The God who spoke all of that into existence cares about you. That's incredible that he would care what's going on in your life. It's, 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 it's not a sign of, it's, it's not a virtue to, to carry your burdens yourself and to say, well, God doesn't need to be bothered with this or God wouldn't possibly care about me. That's actually an assault on his character. He has revealed himself in his word as the God who cares about you. And for you to say that he does not care about you or that, he, that, he, that you shouldn't waste his time is to go against who he says he is. He says he's the God who cares. He says he's the God who knows the number of the hairs on your head. Cast your cares on him because he cares about you. It's actually a command. It's a responsibility. It's a responsibility. It's something he actually commands us to do because he wants the relationship with us that comes out of that. He wants us to enjoy his care. He wants us to enjoy the kind of God, the kind of father that he is. Philippians 4 says it this way in verses 6 and 7 as well. Philippians 4, 
Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Do you see, do you see the cause and effect here? If we, if we, through prayer and petition, present our request to God, we make our needs known, we bring our burdens to him, the result of that will be the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. That means it's a peace that is not dependent upon human logic. It's a peace that's not dependent on physical circumstances. It's a peace that surpasses understanding. It's a peace that doesn't need to make sense. How many times have you been going through something and people around you are like, I just don't understand how you, how you can be doing okay through this. That's the peace that surpasses understanding. That's the peace that doesn't make sense. And that's, that's the result of taking our burdens to the Lord and relying on him. It's the result of what David is doing in Psalm 5. He's taking his burdens. He's surrounded by enemies. He's afraid for his life. People, evil people are always attacking him, bringing him down, pursuing him. And he gets up in the morning and says, listen to my words, Lord. Consider my sighing. Pay attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for I pray to you. Don't, don't miss the importance of that simple reality the one who prays to the God that created this universe and yet cares for the most insignificant of humans, the one who prays to him receives his peace. God hears those prayers. That's incredible. With everything, with everything that is happening in the universe, he is He is paying attention to what I am praying. It's our privilege to take our burdens to the Lord and rely on him. And then, so, so, so that's how David introduces his prayer. And then we get into sort of the content of, of his prayer. And he's, he's, going to, he's going to describe for us what God is like, what Evil men, that's the, I'm going to use his words, evildoers, what evildoers are like, and ultimately, what defines the righteous. And so we're going to learn about God, we're going to learn about evildoers, and we're going to learn about the righteous. Those are, those are interesting words that need to be defined. Who are evildoers? And who are the righteous? Let's take a look together. The next thing you see on the handout is this, that sinners cannot stand before God on their own merit. They cannot stand before God on their own merit. If we just step back a second and look at the psalm, we'll see a couple of stanzas that will lead us through verse, uh, verses. If you think of like modern day songs, you know, we have verses, there's a verse, and then sometimes a chorus, and well, Hebrew poetry has stanzas, and in these stanzas, there's usually like a unified idea, and then the, the next stanza will deal with something else, and they're connected to each other, but separate. 
And so we're going we're gonna to alternate between David talking about the wicked and the righteous. He begins with the wicked. He says in verse 4, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. The boastful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who tell lies. The Lord abhors violent and treacherous people. Now there's so much theology that we need to grasp in those couple of verses right there. What is, why, why does God send people to an eternal hell? I mean, hands down, that's the most difficult doctrine of the Bible, right? There's, there's nothing more difficult than that. The concept, the idea that real people will spend a real eternity in a real hell is difficult. So where does this come from? Why, would, why does God do this? And David gives us part of the answer here. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. The Part of the reason that hell exists is because God is righteous. He's perfectly just. He's as good as good can be. He's pure. He's completely innocent. He, he, there, there is, there's nothing tainted or evil or wicked within him. He's just pure righteousness. And because of that, evil, unrighteousness, sin cannot dwell with him. It cannot exist in his presence. God and evil cannot be together. That's how pure and how just and how righteous he is, always has been, and always will be. The problem for us is that we represent evil. We're sinners. Now, some of this language is so difficult for our modern ears to hear. We don't talk this way about a lot of people anymore. We don't, it wasn't, you know, there was a time where it was like people kind of thought there's good people and there's bad people and stuff, but now there's, there's we've just really changed the vocabulary a lot. And so it's difficult for modern ears to hear this, but if you, if you think it through, it's, it begins to make sense. So you've got God who's righteous and just and pure, and then you've got Fred. I won't, I won't pick on you. Let me just pick on me. You've got me. I've, I've done things that aren't righteous and just and pure. And the Bible calls that rebellion. And that's exactly what it is. I've actually sinned against an infinitely righteous and an infinitely just God. We, we underestimate the, the heinousness of the sins that we commit because what we, what we typically do is we don't compare ourselves to his just standard. We compare ourselves to other sinners. And when I compare myself to you, I might say, oh, I'm just as good as the next guy. Probably even better than some. Maybe not as good as some. But I don't find this huge distance between me and the people around me. I'm like, yeah, we're kind of all like the same, right? But 
the problem with that is, is that we're comparing ourselves to the wrong standard. God is not going to judge us according to that standard. He's not going to judge us according to the standard that we've established in our own minds. And therefore, we cannot come and be where he is. We can't be with him. We're eternally separated from him. And that will never change unless he does something about it. But as it is now, sinners cannot stand before God on their own merit. You and I cannot come to God and we can't simply just say, well, I did this, this, and this. Remember, you remember the, the, the people who came to Jesus in the New Testament? They came to Jesus and they say, Lord, Lord, what, didn't we do this in your name? And didn't we do that in your name? And he says, I never knew you. He's like, I don't know who you are. You don't belong here. We can't come to God on our own merit. We can't come to God and say, but here's all the good things I've done. Because we're still sinners. And evil cannot exist in his presence. Do you see this in Psalm 5? For you're not, you're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. Do you see the problem that is presented here? The boastful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. You're going to see some strong language in Psalms. You're going to see some things that you go, wow, does he? Is that, is that, is that true? Does he hate all evildoers? Verse six says, you destroy those who tell lies. Have you ever told a lie? I have. The Lord abhors violent and treacherous people. Have you ever committed violence? I have. Have you ever behaved treacherously? Here's the problem, guys. This is us. This is us, and, and this is just the tip of the iceberg of the standard by which God holds mankind or any who would come into his presence. And so we already see a problem in the beginning, or, or, or in this early part of Psalm 5. We have a God who is, who is infinitely righteous, and then we have what kind of sounds like us being described as evildoers. And I'll use the word sinners. It's not the word that David is using here in this part of the psalm, but it's the way the Bible defines all of those who at one point or another have committed any act of evil. We're sinners. We're sinners before God. Okay, so if sinners cannot stand before God in their own merit, where's the good news in this? Let's keep going because there's lots of good news in this psalm. The next thing you see on the handout is this. The righteous come to him by his mercy and love. The righteous come to him by his mercy and love. So we're going to compare sinners with the righteous. And I said this in Psalm 1. It's the difference between sinners and the righteous is not that some sin and the others don't sin. That, that might be easy to read this and to think in those terms, but that's not the way that the Bible defines them. The righteous come to him by his mercy and love. And so David describes, you have these sinners. They cannot be in God's presence. They're never coming into his house. He hates them. He abhors them. But then in verse 7, David says, But I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. 
I bow down to your holy temple in reverential awe of you. Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my adversaries. Make your way straight before me. So what is David saying? Is he saying he's not evil? He's not, he's not sinful? He can come into the Lord's presence because he's righteous? Well, if you know anything about the life of David, you know that can't possibly be what he's saying. He's not righteous. That whole thing with Bathsheba and her husband tells us everything we need to know about David's character and whether or not he is righteous on the inside. He's not. He actually fits in the category of what he just referred to as evildoers. He lies, he's violent, and he behaves treacherously. So what's going on here? Why does he say those people don't get to come into his presence, but I enter your house? The key here is that he enters his house not on his own merit, not based on what he has done, but he comes into God's presence by the abundance of his faithful love. He comes to him by his mercy. David has found a way to receive mercy instead of justice. He has found a way to receive mercy instead of justice. Let's keep reading. He says, I bow down toward your holy temple in reverential awe of you. In the earlier, in verses four through six, you have these evildoers who are boastful. And then you have the righteous who bow down in reverential awe. The attitude of the heart is the first thing that we see is different between the two groups of people. And then he says, Lord, lead me in your righteousness. He points to the faithful love of God. He points to the Lord's righteousness. And he says this, because of my adversaries, make your way straight before me. He's, he's, seeking, he's seeking to escape those who are pursuing him. Here's what we need to know, is that the righteous always come to him by his mercy and by his love. The righteous never come to him on their own merit. The righteous never come before God and say, because of who I am, because of what I've done, because of my goodness, I come before you. The righteous are those who have who have recognized their need for his mercy and for his grace, and who have recognized their need for his righteousness. Now, we're in the Old Testament where this is just beginning to, to play out in the story of God's redemption. It's not until we get to the New Testament that, we, that all these pieces come together. So let's look at Romans chapter 3 together. In Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, which is a passage if you read the whole passage, you actually see connections back to Psalm 5. But I want to read verses 21 through 26 where it says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. Time out. Let's just stop right there. Paul is picking up where David left off. 
David is hinting at this idea that we cannot come before God by our own actions and our own deeds and our own merit. We can't come to God and say, here's my resume, here's what I've done to deserve to be in your presence. It never works. Instead, we come to him because of his abundance, abundant and faithful love. And we come to him in awe, seeking his righteousness. So Paul, in verse 21, says, Now apart from the law, that's apart from our own observance of the law, apart from our own obedience, apart from our own merit, the righteousness of God has been revealed. In verse 22, he says, The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. In other words, this God that stands in perfect justice and perfect righteousness is now making his righteousness available to those who would come to him through the gospel. He's making, he's making, he's gifting, he's giving his righteousness. He's over here, sinners are over there, all of us are over there, and he's, there's no way for us to come to him. And he says, here, put this on. Put on my righteousness. That's what's happening through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus on the cross takes upon himself our sinfulness, and for all who believe and trust in him, he gifts to them his righteousness. Now we come before God, not in our own merit, not saying, look, see what I've done. We come before God saying, look, see what you have done through your son. See what Jesus did. See how he came and lived a perfectly righteous life. See how he came and died to pay the penalty that my sins deserve. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. The mercy seat is a reference back to the Old Testament sacrificial system through which God would make people righteous by faith. Righteousness by faith is not just a New Testament idea. It's actually an Old Testament idea. But in the Old Testament, in order to receive righteousness by faith, they had to act according to the sacrificial system. Part of the sacrificial system was the mercy seat where God would make atonement for the sins of man through the sacrifice of animals. But now God has made atonement for the sins of man through the sacrifice of his perfect son. That's what Paul is picking up on here. Presented him, Jesus, as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul says all of that to say what David is saying. 
I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. We, as followers of Christ, as New Testament believers, we come into God's presence by the faithfulness of his love in sending his son to die in our place. That's the gospel. Sinners cannot stand before God on their own merit, but the righteous come to him by his mercy and love. Now, let's go back to David in Psalm 5. In Psalm 5, David switches back. I said he goes back and forth between the righteous and the wicked. He's going to go back to the wicked for a moment. The point on the handout is this. Those who continue in their rebellion seal their own fate. Those who continue in their rebellion seal their own fate. If sinners can't get to God on their own merit, if we can't earn our way to God's presence, or if you want to think of it this way, if we can't earn our way to heaven, that's God's eternal presence among his people. If we can't get to God by our own actions, yet we can get to God through the righteousness of his son and through his love and through his mercy, then what of those who refuse to come to God David, there is nothing reliable in what they say. Destruction is within them. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. Punish them, God. Let them fall by their own schemes. Drive them out because of their many crimes, for they rebel against you. Those who refuse to come to God through the righteousness of Jesus those who continue to live life on, let's say, their terms by their own definition of righteousness and will not, not come to the Father through Jesus Christ the Son, they have sealed their own fate. Ultimately, God will not allow them to continue to persist in their rebellion forever. He will deal with them as David says here, punish them, let them fall by their own schemes. Drive them out because of their many crimes for they rebel against you. This is a terrifying reality. The fact, the idea, the thought that we get to a point where we have persisted so long in our, and I don't mean... I'm not trying to say when this happened. I'm not saying this is, happens in this life. But you get to a point where you've persisted so long in your rebellion against God that the opportunity to repent and the opportunity to, to come to him through the Son no longer exists. That's hell. That's what it means to be eternally separated from God. To eventually get what you have insisted on having. Judgment according to your own merit. Judgment according to your own deeds. So you see, what we said in Psalm 1 continues to be true here in Psalm 5. It's not that there's two groups of people, good people and bad people. There's just sinners. There's just us. There's just broken, sinful people who've rebelled against God. The difference, the eternal difference, the difference between Eternity with Christ and the, and the eternity without Christ 
is whether or not you have received his love, his mercy through the gospel of Jesus Christ and placed your trust in him, not in yourself. The difference is, have you been gifted the righteousness of Christ in order to be made fit to come into God's presence? Those who continue in their rebellion, though, seal their own fate. Then finally, let's end on a happy note. Finally, this is where David goes. He is a shin you rejoice. There's no greater refuge that we can take than to hide in his mercy and in his love. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them shout for joy forever. May you shelter them, and may those who love your name boast about you. Earlier in the psalm, the evildoers boasted of themselves. The righteous boast of what he has done. For you, Lord, bless the righteous one. 